welcome back to the Legend of Zelda Lorecast. I'm your host, Aaron, and joining me again is our lovely behind-the-scenes guy, Wolfsler. He's waving. Oh, wait, I'm waving. Yeah, <laughs> not great for an audio format. My no, bad. Not at all. Uh, but today, we were going to talk about uh, everyone's favorite Legend of Zelda villain, Ganon. But I think we're going to put that on pause because I would really like Ariel's input in his whole villain arc and his, you know, direction. She's such a huge... She's got a lot of knowledge when it comes to villains, so I'd like her input there. But today, I think we've decided we're going to do... We're going to talk about magic in the Legend of Zelda universe because going forward in these games, we're going to see a lot more magical influence in the Legend of Zelda series. You know, it was there in Skyward Sword. It was there in Minish Cap, but it was just kind of almost backgroundish. But moving on to Four Swords, it's like a major element in the Four Swords and beyond. Wouldn't you say, Wolf? Oh, absolutely. It's it really it really defines the games moving forward, in my opinion. Yeah, I could I could see that. It's always been present from the start, some essence of mm-hmm. magic. And it's only become more pronounced as the series has continued. Oh, of course. Now, I will say this much. We do see a dramatic decline in magic usage the minute you hit Breath of the Wild. Not to say that there isn't magic there, because obviously we see it in weapons, and we'll we'll discuss this further when we get to it, but the magical influence that you'll see in the other games like Ocarina of Time, Four Swords, you know, even in some of the other games like you know, Wind Waker and stuff, the magical influence is there. Like, it is the campaign setting. But with Breath of the Wild, it's more so the deprivement of magic. Because, you know, you have Calamity taking over, and it's kind of sucking the life out of everything in Breath of the Wild. So, it's understandable that magic, though it exists, and you can see it all around you, it's not really prevalently used by a lot of people right now. So with all that being discussed, let's move into magic, okay? So the first thing I want to bring up here is Hillians and magic. And Wolf found a, a really good article about this. Um, and it was on uh, Zelda.fandom.com. And I'm gonna let him I'm gonna let him talk about it. I'm gonna let him start talking. So it mentions that uh, naturally Helians are uh, capable of performing magic because uh, their bloodstream already has magic infused through it. So um, they're able to wield it and shape it much more naturally than a lot of the other races. So they bring up especially like uh, in Ocarina of Time and... A couple other games, uh, Link specifically gets a magic meter that gauges, Mm -hmm. you know, how much magic he can end up using naturally before he has to let it uh, recharge. Yes. Yes. And that's due to his Helian descent. So while we're while we're talking about this. I also want to bring up the fact that there is yet another race that is naturally attuned to magic. And that is the Sheikah. And the reason I bring this up is because the Sheikah, this is what I gather from. This is my theory, if you will, from the evidence prevalent in a lot of these games. The Helians seem to focus on more the more of the lighter side of magic, you know, like the healing aspect and you know, as they, you know, the magic swords and shields and, you know, boomerangs and things that Link's used, they're brighter in color when used and, you know, they're flashier and more exotic. Whereas the items that we find that the Sheikah have that are magical, they're more of a darker tone. 
which means that they use the more darker side of magics, which, as we discussed the Sheikah before, follows suit with who they are. They are the dwellers of darkness for the Hyrulean family. You know, they deal with the the dar- down and dirty behind the scenes kind of stuff. The torture, the, you know, information gathering, all the stuff that the Helian fam- you know, royal family doesn't want to deal with, they deal with it. And that's not to say other races can't use magic. Because obviously we see that the when, you know, Ganon comes, and we'll talk about this more when we get to Ganon, Ganon comes around, he actually wields magic. You know, the Gerudo champion has the ability to create a shield, you know, all of these races can use magic, but it's not like it's prevalent throughout their entire species. They're individuals who, you know, mastered this one specific art or multiple arts over a lot of time. The Hillians, however, can pick up a magic rod and use it (laughs) willy-nilly. And this also comes from their bloodline, like you said, which is directly descended from none other than a goddess. And then even then you want to talk about magic users in uh, the portable ones. So like uh, oracles, all of those, I believe even in uh, the four swords adventures, you get witches. So Mm -hmm. maple and syrup who are two NPCs that sell you magic based items, mushrooms, this and that. They're also prevalent magic users. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely rich in the land and its people. Exactly. So now that we've discussed who uses magic, let's discuss how does this all combine together? How how are we getting from one game to the other based on magic? Or where did magic even come from? So a little bit of brief history here. Uh, magic dates all the way back to the very beginning of the Zelda series from 1986 game. In that game, you know, you had Boomerang, you had the sword, you had the magic shield, you had, you know, the flame, you had all kinds of magic items, but there wasn't a whole lot of history. Where did magic come from is a lot of where people are asking. Well, the answer is very simple. Nehru. The goddess Nehru actually gifted magic unto the world. And we know this because Nehru is the goddess of wisdom. And wisdom controls magic. Simple as that. Also, (laughs) I don't. So in the manual that came with the link in the to link to the past in the box with the cartridge, there's Mm -hmm. an actual um, segment that says uh, um, that the god uh, or goddess of wisdom made science and magic and awarded the land with natural order. So it says states right there. Science, magic. That is what they brought. Exactly. And the thing is, with a lot of people, they don't realize because I didn't until I started really diving deep into Legend of Zelda that a lot of those old like Nintendo and Super Nintendo manuals actually gave a lot of the backstory. You were thrown into the games like right away. You didn't really know what was going on half the time, but that's because most of the storyline was included into those player manuals. So a lot of time has passed and people are like, where did magic even come from? Well, we'll assume it was from Nehru. There's your definitive answer. It's in the manual. (laughs) So the answer to why magic is simple. Nehru, when all the goddesses came together to create the world and everything in it, essentially everything was an absolute chaos. And the goddesses descended and they were in charge of different sections. Nehru was in charge specifically of giving the world order and giving it purpose. So there's why. 
But there's a lot more darker aspects to magic. And I'm going to let Wolf talk about this one because it's actually extremely interesting. It has a lot to do with Lene Rue. And this Lene Rue. So we learn all of this from, I think, one of your favorite games because you really liked Twilight Princess. Right? Oh, I loved Twilight Princess. My favorite is still Majora's Mask, but Twilight Princess is really up there. Um, so there are spirits of light that you meet. And one of those is, uh, Lene Rue, who is named after, um, one of the dragons who was around in the era of the goddess. Um, which I think you meet in breath of the wild, but I didn't play it. Spoiler alert. Um, oh, no, I know we'll, we'll talk about how bad I am about that. Um, later. But um, in a lot of the exposition Lanayru gets to you, they teach you about uh, the fused shadows that are roaming around and how that they were formed from these magic wielders known as the Dark Interlopers, uh, who were trying to take over and control the Sacred Realm. And these magic users, the dark interlopers, were so powerful and proficient in their sorcery that all of the gods had to step in to separate them from their magic and banish them to a separate realm. The shadow realm, I think. Yes, kind of. Yeah. The twilight realm. The twilight realm. Yeah. Right. I've been. Never mind. It's, it's been called a lot of things, but it ends up being the Twilight Realm. Right. But they're they're definitely a fascinating, and I don't think we ever get to see them in their former glory as of yet, but they were definitely like at a point magic was being thrown around in such high concentration that even the gods were getting nervous. To tell you, to, to demonstrate how powerful they are. And I cannot wait to get to this game. Because like I said, it is one of my favorites. They are solely responsible for making the Cursed Trident, the Pyramid, and the Mask of Majora. Oh yeah. Yes. They are, the, the Dark Interlopers are so powerful and so demented and dark that they created some of the most potent things in the Legend of Zelda series that we actually have full forged games around. Correct. So think about it as Link, you're going up and not only are you trying to save the day, but you're also cleaning up this mess here. It was yeah, they were powerful enough that the gods had to step in and be like, yo, we need uh, we need to shut them down because this is an issue. Let's, yeah. We can sort out our differences later. <laughs> and I, I have to focus on some key words there. The gods came together. That means all of them had to fight at one time to take on this dark tribe. Not separately. They didn't, you know, uh, it wasn't just one god or goddess that came down. It was all of them at the same time had to take these people on. And Bonkers. it's it's absolutely insane. And it's insane enough for me to, to do an entire episode in the future on them. And we will get to them when we start to get closer to Twilight Princess. Because they are a huge part of Twilight Princess. Yeah. But at any rate, what happened to them essentially is they became the Twi'li or the Twi'li being stuck in the twilight realm for so long they and being separated from their magic they became almost domesticated and domicile to a degree so you you got to think about that that is that is heavy they were their magic was taken from them by the gods they were sentenced to eternity in a completely different realm of absolute darkness And then they went from these big, powerful beings to domicile peoples 
Well, let, let's let's be fair. You make it sound like they were just minding their business and like <laughs> we got magic and the gods were like, no, you don't. No, no, no they, were they were actively bad. trying to take over this sacred realm. Absolutely. But, <laughs> but it's you. Got, what I'm what I'm getting at is to take be, think about them as being so powerful that they when put into this realm absolutely lost all determination to be that same level of power and try to take something over they after losing their magic and being sent to this place they were just done like they completely washed out they i don't even know if they remember even being this kind of creature or you know entity but it's incredible to think about and that's why like i said in the future we're going to dedicate an entire episode to them because it's a lot it's a lot to take in but all that being said, we know where magic came from. We know who can use it just naturally and who has to work for it. And we know of some of the darker past of magic. When we come back from our midbreak, we're going to talk about some of the magical items that we've seen in the series, some of the more potent ones, some of the more prominent ones, and where or who they may have originated from. Well, welcome to the middle of the show. Wolf, what do we need to do in the middle of the show? Well, what else can we do but thank the amazing patrons? Oh, the amazing patrons. Like Relic to Rebman, our Sheikah patron, and Remington Cloutier, our Kokiri patron. Thank you. You're wonderful. <laughs> and I say this sarcastically, but you are wonderful. You're absolutely amazing. Uh, I've had a chance to talk to both of these individuals, and they're great. They're fantastic. I, I, I just love our patrons. If well, No matter what the show we do, I love our patrons. They're always awesome. Uh, but... I do want to shout out real quick some of the amazing stuff that is coming soon for them. With our Sheikah patrons and above, you get a lovely little guest spot on our next episode. So if you're listening to this, be prepared because the next episode, you're going to come in and you are going to talk with us live for the next step. So I'm super excited about that. So, yes, I'm super excited to have our patrons come and talk to us. I've been waiting on this. The Discord has been absolutely just blowing up with wonderful fan theories from Azra and Nina Kitty. It's it's been bonkers. I, I it got so much at some one point. I I just couldn't keep up, but it's awesome. I've been going through the last couple of days and reading all of them. And I got to say that the fan theories are great. So if you're not a part of the Discord, you need to jump in there because it is a lot of Zelda talk. <laughs> but all that being said, we also have to thank somebody else, Wolf. We have to thank our lovely people who will take the time to give us some reviews. We got two new five-star reviews. What? Yes. So the first one comes to us from Sabronka, and it says new favorite podcast. I am addicted. I grew up surrounded by The Legend of Zelda and feel such nostalgia listening to the hosts give such informative lure about the games. Thank you for the dedication. I can't wait to go through the whole series. Neither can we. I am stoked to go through the whole series. I'm stoked to go through a bunch of the stuff that you know you miss or you don't quite get enough info and you got to go play like nine games to figure it out. And I'm super stoked to go through this entire series. Oh, absolutely. Oh. Like, just wait to the part where I drag Crate uh, through um, the Saturday morning cartoon so we can talk about it. Oh, no. Great. Well, excuse me, princess. Oh, no. <laughs> so our, our next review comes from Gerudo Girl 12. Amazing podcast. This podcast is the best because I am learning so much. My family is completely obsessed with Zelda and we have only played Breath of the Wild, so I like to hear about the other games. 
I have one question, and that is, who is your favorite champion? Mine is Urbosa. Keep up the good work. Okay, are you ready for this? Mine is actually Daruk. I I love his disposition, his personality. Everything about Daruk just screams, Hi, I'm your big brother. I'm here to help you in any way possible. Also, I crack jokes randomly. That's that's pretty much Daruk's personality, and I absolutely love it. Um, I I've never played Breath of the Wild. I know you really need to. I it's I've slowly started. Um, <laughs> but I did look up the champions. There is a edgy bird man. I oh. like my edge. So Rivali, Rivali seems to be my boy as for right now. Maybe I'll update that later. Uh, I don't. I'm not gonna spoil it, but. I, yeah, I've got I've got reservations about Rivali. <laughs> I do to like Fairy. Urbosa he, is definitely my second. Like it was neck and neck with Daruk and Urbosa because I mean, Urbosa is like the big sister you want to hang around. You know, she's just she's just wonderful. That's why I was like, ah, I don't know, I don't know. Daruk the comedy is what got me for him though. Like that's fair. Yeah, we like our funny characters. We do. We do. Arabosa, though, right up there in the running for number one. Like, oh, it's so neck and neck. There's been times where I'm like, Arabosa, my heart. (laughs) And I definitely I'm glad people are learning from this. I think even though you and I both really love the series, even though I am um, a newcomer to stepping into the show right now, Mm -hmm. we're both learning as we step in and do more like in-depth research on this. So even though we love it, we're still picking up little bits that we're like, oh, really? Yes. Mm. Yes. I I love I love doing this show for that reason, because there are still even as dedicated as I am to being a fan of Legend of Zelda series. There's still so much I'm learning. Like I would have never imagined how dark the Sheikah actually were. That was the first thing that I was like, what? It really shocked me. Anyway, thank you for leaving those wonderful reviews. Thank you again to our patrons who are just amazing. You know, when you leave reviews, it really helps boost us. It really gets us some really good credibility, visibility. It's fantastic. And I encourage you not just for our show or any of the shows we do. I encourage you, if you listen to a pod and you love it, get out there and review it because it really does help them. And oh yeah, you know you got to think the you know not only us but whoever you love to listen to out there is really putting their heart, soul, and dedication into trying to create the best content for you that they can, and they're really only asking for very little. Just you know, show some love. Give me a you know, give us a good review. They're only asking for just a very little, and that helps them out so much. So for you guys to take that second to do that it's so appreciative I, I cannot tell you how much and to the patrons who take that extra you know second to go in and donate to the patreons to help support the show it just means that much more so i appreciate you all across the board and even the people in the discord keeping the chat alive and going i just i cannot say how much i appreciate enough our fans period and you know what even if let's say for whatever reason you can't leave a review or you don't have the money to spend exactly take a moment tell tell a friend somebody else who loves the legend of zelda somebody else you want to pull into the world tell them about it even word of mouth that helps us mm-hmm. so tremendously to get it out there it really does it's just as impactful as donating or leaving a review it really I cannot stress it enough how wonderful it is to share, you know, like review, donate any of these small, you know, or large things is so incredible. And I I appreciate you taking that time for any of these things. Thank you. We love you. You're amazing. If you could see us right now, we are hands together. Oh, thank you. But anyway, we've got some exciting stuff to talk about in the middle of the show, like merch. Wolf, you brought merch. 
All right, so I wanted to bring you guys some special merch uh, from Etsy. Somebody handcrafted and made uh, the Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening uh, boomerang. Really beautiful, uh, like hand pressed, looks wooden with these gold uh, rivets around it. Giant red uh, gem in the middle has its own stand for it coming in. About a hundred bucks. It's a little on the pricey side, but it's like handmade. It is absolutely a collectible and it's it's so stunning. I, I've sent crit pictures and it's beautiful. <laughs> it's gorgeous. It is absolutely gorgeous. So, you know, shout out to them. Uh, your secret loot box. It looks like they do all sorts of video game stuff, not just um legend of zelda but definitely go check out the boomerang it's a collectible that any legend of zelda fan should have on their shelf uh yeah i'm looking at maybe getting it soon (laughs) so on that note of legend of zelda collectible merch i too found a weapon that is in the series i found a limited edition deluxe skyward sword the, the sky titular? the <laughs> titular skyward sword so this is uh, on amazon and it is a one-for-one replica of the skyward sword from the legend of zelda series it is a full tang master sword sharpened that is key there it is sharp it is sharpened and it comes with a belt and a holder and None other than the sheath as well. It all comes together in a nice little package. It's very pretty. Uh, it is very well crafted looking. I wouldn't go swinging it around or trying to chop wood with it because it is a replica. Um, but it is made out of aluminum alloy and it has a bronze antique finish. The handle is 12.25 inches and it is wooden with faux leather straps and wrappings. So. This bad boy will put you back $74.99. That's not a bad price for a nice looking replica like that. Holy. Mm. If you don't like the blue design, you can also get it in a black design, which is really cool looking. And it is the black design will put you back about... An additional, I'd say, 15 bucks. It's $89.99 for this edition. So you can get it in either color you want. Um, and it does have some inscriptions down the blade, just like the one in the game as well. So there's that for you. And the links for both of these items will be in the show notes, of course. And I would be remiss, since we're talking about collectibles from the game, I would be remiss not to mention our lovely, lovely sponsors, the folks over at STL Ocarina, who make a fantastic replica of the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, as well as other Ocarinas. I mean, Wolf's checked out the Ocarinas on there, and he'll tell you, there are some cool ones. There's some Final Fantasy themed. There's some you know D themed there's all kinds of no. themed ocarinas there's a mighty morphin power rangers green ranger yes. dragon flute ocarina yes. <laughs> so <clears throat> with all this being said the craftsmanship we we actually have one here in the studio the craftsmanship is fantastic uh, uh playing it is even better and it comes m- with a how-to booklet and what more can you ask for from a company? What about customer service? Customer service is fantastic too. I I talk about this all the time. We ordered ours for like a good solid three, four weeks. We were getting messages. I was getting text messages and emails sent from customer service reps, just making sure that I was good. If there was any issues, anything like that, they were on top of it. And I just, I cannot thank them enough. They're fantastic. And if you're looking to get an ocarina or a replica or whatever you're looking for, if you go to their website and you use the promo code LOZLORE10, you can get 10% off your total purchase. And 
that's even better. You get a discount on top of the discounts they already offer in there. Go check them out at stlocarena.com. So with all that being said, I think our mid-break is over, Wolf. So let's get back to the end of the episode where we're going to talk more about Legend of Zelda magic. So here we are at the end of the episode. So before we go any further, I'd like to mention some names that we're going to drop through the series. We briefly talked about some, but I want to do full name drops of people who are known magic users in the Legend of Zelda series. So out of the Hillians, we have Link, Princess Zelda, the Dark Interlopers, Syrup, and Maple that you already mentioned. From the Gerudo side of things, we have Ganondorf, we have Twin Rova, and we have Urbosa. From the Gorons, we only have two. We have Daruk, and we have Yonobo. And then this is what I was talking about with the shields that they can use. From the Zora, it's similar to the Gorons. The Zora have two, Mipha and Sidon, which again are the champion and stand-in champion. And the Ritos are similar. They have Ravali and Tulin. And the Twili have Midna and Zont. And there are several sages and demons that we will... I'm not going to go through the list. There's a lot of them. But the sages and the demons also are magic users. Just by trade. So, well, and a lot of those will be covered in their own series because it's especially like the sages are super important, like uh, Impa. Oh, yeah. Is a huge player. There, There's a bunch of them that'll be covered down the line, but... Oh, yeah. But the one that everyone immediately thinks of from right from the get-go is Rauru. Mm. And that is because Rauru essentially was one of the very first sages as the sage of light and a lot of what happens with the sages is basically his vault you know yeah or, his... or there was go ahead oh i was gonna say there was also um nabaru from uh ocarina she becomes the uh sage of spirit uh nabaru yeah nabaru yeah yep, yep. Yeah, so I said there's there's a couple of them, but Rauru is the very first one that everybody thinks of when you say sages. That is the one that comes to mind. And it's because it, they're a very prominent figure in the sages kind of area. But again, we'll get to the sages when we start dedicating an episode directly to them when they come into super, super importance in the Ocarina of Time series. So with all that being said, we've answered the question of who, what, when, where, how. So let's talk about some uh, some wonderful, oh-so-creative, cool magic items that we would see in the series. Well, let's start off with some of them. We, um, in most of them, I think, Link to the Past, uh, Ocarina of Time are big ones. You get the medallions, magic oh. medallions you get from sages. Yep. Or beating uh, certain bosses that do various things um, to help you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, other than the medallions, we also have the cane of Samaria. We have the staff of... I could never pronounce this. I'm going to try my best. Byrna? Byrna? I never could pronounce that right. (laughs) Um, we have the magic cape, you know, we, these are, these are some of the magic items that we see throughout, but we also, here's one that everyone tends to kind of glance over. We have the magic arrows. We have ice, fire, electric. We have light, you know, these arrows are magic based and they all come from different vicinities, you know? The canes and capes usually come from old sages or, you know, known powerful magic users from the past. 
the medallions are from the bosses themselves, but there are some that you don't really think about until you really get down to the nitty gritties. And I'm talking tunics. More predominantly in the Ocarina of Time series, you have your blue tunic, your red tunic, and your green tunic. And the blue tunic allows you to be underwater. The red tunic allows you to be resistance to heat and fire to a degree. I mean, you can't walk on lava. <laughs> but, I mean, they're tunics. They're the It's just clothing that's infused with magic. And again, you don't, we, we just kind of glance over these in the series and we don't really give them the respect they deserve. Because you have to think somebody weaved this item with magic. Not just right. with sewing needle and, you know, time and dedication. They they weaved magic into this. So another thing we glance over until we get to Majora's Mask is the masks themselves. Throughout the series, you will be given a mask that has a slight hint of magical properties. It's not until Majora's Mask that we see that there is a ton of masks that have these crazy abilities like Majora's Mask alone is insanely powerful but what about the fierce deity mask well and if we're going to be talking about powerful magic items that we'll be covering later the titular wind waker that borrows (laughs) power from magic from the gods in order to change the elements and the weather itself uh yeah it's it, the thing is, is like I said, we've we've played these games as fans. We've loved these games, but none of us have actually taken the time to appreciate the magical items themselves. Like, for example, the Wind Waker. Yeah, you you get it. It's and like most of us when we're playing through it, we're like, oh, this is a cool gimmick. But you start to go into the lore about, you know, how it was crafted long ago and how it actually borrows into the like taps into the god's own magic to borrow it and then the songs that the bard who created it would play would change things around him weather and the such and it's it's crazy so a little bit about the wind waker and we're going to talk about it again when we get there but it is a conductor's baton that link uses to like you said change the weather and to do all kinds of different things with the his environment now the history behind it is that it was actually used by the king of Hyrule at one point to conduct the sages the wand is so powerful that it can conduct the sages And that's insane because we know that they're one of the most powerful entities in the Legend of Zelda series, aside from the very dark, dark, we will not speak of beings that got condemned to the, you know, realm of twilight. Uh, (laughs) Z-targeting. Z-targeting is also crazy powerful. Uh, But yeah, so we get this wand from the King of Red Lions and that's about it. That's that's all you really get out of the game. The rest of it is going to be you having to delve through. But we do get a quote from the King of Red Lions, which I'll read here. This is the Wind Waker. It is a baton of sorts that was used long ago when the people played music in prayer to the gods. In those days, simply using it allowed one to borrow the power of the gods. But I do not know if it still works. Even so, I thought it might be of some use to you. Perhaps you should try using it. So, like you said, it it borrows the power of the gods. Okay, this thing is insanely powerful. Much like nobody really thinks about it because it's always our weapon. But the Master Sword. The Master Sword was crafted by the gods, given to a goddess who then reforged it for then you as Link to once again reforge it. So it's been reforged 
by multiple hands, by multiple powerful people, to end up in mortal hands. It's insanely powerful, but yet again, we it's one of those items we brush over in the series because, oh, cool, it's a new item. We don't really think about the history or the backstory with it. So another item that I want to talk about that is really prominent throughout the series is the ocarina itself. So the ocarina, there is a really heavily, heavily seated theory, um, which I latched onto right away, which is that the ocarina was actually crafted out of the time material, the time stones that you see in Skyward Sword. Because it has that same property to manipulate time itself. And this is actually confirmed in the Legend of Zelda encyclopedia that you can, you know, you can purchase for yourself. But it's confirmed in there that this is an item amongst others that was crafted out of these time stones. Now, I actually, before people get angry, I'm going to, um, actually you, mm. the Hyrule Historia itself uh, describes the glow given off of the Ocarina time as reminiscent of the glow of an active time shift stone, but does not go into further detail on if they're actually connected. So, it was, so number one, it wasn't the encyclopedia. It was the Historia. Uh, I have way too many books to read. I I apologize. Uh, number two, yeah, they don't actually confirm it, but they confirm it. I mean, come on now. That's that's confirming <laughs> it without confirming it. So, yeah, it gives off that same glow. And like I said, other things amongst the series do as well. And I won't get too far into it because that's going to give a whole lot with Ocarina of Time away. But again, something to think about. Who crafted this item? Who's so powerful that they could craft this item to give it further properties because as we know the time stones in their natural state can only affect a certain radius around them I would assume it would have to have been the gods themselves because what the ocarina of time I guess spoilers real quick (laughs) was one of uh, the four keys needed to even enter the sacred realm and that's what I can assume. And when we get closer to that, we'll probably have a more affirmative answer because I haven't done a whole lot of research on the Ocarina itself. I won't lie. Um, I plan to when we get closer to the Ocarina of Time. But it's one of those things where somebody super powerful had to have created this because it doesn't just reflect, like I said, doesn't just affect an area around you. It affects upwards to time itself for the entire universe existence period you know it can affect the smallest of things to you know an area all the way up to time itself which we witness in Majora's Mask multiple times over so all that being said there's there's some of our lovely little magical items but going from that we're running a little bit short on time Wolf, is there anything you would like to add to this episode about magic in the Legend of Zelda universe? Oh no, I was I was preparing myself for. <laughs> um, there is a rant when we get to Ocarina that I have, and it's it's pretty grand. It actually revolves around the Ocarina of Time itself. Since we're covering magic items, I can do it here, but I always think it's funny how Link so. You, you've played through Ocarina of Time, yes? Of course, multiple times. So you know how Saria in uh, Ocarina of Time, you know, his childhood friend from uh, the Kokiri Forest gives him like an ocarina when he leaves and she's like, you know, this whole bond us kind of forever. The moment Link comes across the Ocarina of Time, he's like, whoops, out with you. Got a shiny new toy. <laughs> I, that always did kind of bother me throughout. So, yeah, that really did bother me. Ah, oh, man. So I love you got to love the little the little things when it comes to the Legend of Zelda series. So there is one more thing I would like to add, um, which is 
Breath of the Wild focused here. So if you haven't played through Breath of the Wild yet, spoiler alerts here, slight spoiler alerts as Wolf takes off his headphones. Yeah. <laughs> so we were talking at the beginning of the episode how magic kind of it exists. It fully exists in the Breath of the Wild games, but it's not super prevalent like it used to be in the other games. And if you haven't played any of the other games, you won't really understand this, you know, comparison. Hopefully in Breath of the Wild 2, you will. But in the Breath of the Wild game, you get different things such as, you know, the meteor rods, the great thunder blade, the great frost blade, the great flame blade, you know, these magical weapons and there's tons of other ones. They are not very commonly found. Unlike, you know, other games we've played, you know, you got the magic master sword at all times. They're not really found a whole lot. That's not to say they're super rare. You can't get one once in a while because I've ran around with, you know, five Thunderblades before at one time. It's to say that, you know, usually when you get them, they're in odd areas or they're in locked chest in certain puzzles. You know, they're a little bit more challenging to get to versus a spear or a regular sword. But we also see this in the Master Sword itself. As you know, when you get to the Master Sword, it's very rusted. It's very broken. It's very worn down. And the thing to think about is, is throughout the rest of the series, anytime you see the Master Sword in any form, doesn't matter how long it's set there, it still looks just as pristine as the day it was put in that stone. At least it doesn't break after a few hits anymore. (laughs) But that brings up a good point, which is in the Breath of the Wild game, the sword does run out of magic. It even specifically says it's out of magic, which means the Master Sword isn't like it used to be in the other games where you can just run around and smack everything you wanted, but the Master Sword never have to worry about anything. It means magic's limited it's a limited resource now. And a lot of that can be, and we'll talk about this more in depth when we get to Breath of the Wild, but a lot of that can be attributed to Calamity Ganon taking over everything and poisoning it all. I mean, the Sheikah tech runs on magic, essentially, and it's very poisoned. I mean, it's manipulated against us. You know, it's it's there Magic still exists, but it's not as versatile and it's not as prominent as it used to be. And it, we see that a lot because a lot of the you know old archives are destroyed or worn down or broken. You know, the, the old shrines are, you know, there's it's there's a lot of calamity caused a lot more than just physical destruction here. Yes. That's all I can say. I haven't played Breath of the Wild. Yes. So it's I I wanted to bring it up because one Breath of the Wild is the most current game in the series Two, a lot of our fans have been, you know, telling us that they haven't played any of the other games. So you can't really compare Breath of the Wild's magic to anything else. And three, it's because I want the next time you crack open Breath of the Wild, I want you to actually take a look around and see for yourself how much magic that isn't directly influenced by the goddesses themselves or gods in general. I want you to look and see how much of that actually exists. That's not influenced by gods or goddesses actually exists. How much, you know, Hylian or Sheikah or whatever, you know, species made magic actually exists in the Breath of the Wild because there's not a whole lot. Not like it used to be. So, you know, unless it's the gods, the goddesses or the sages themselves, there's not a whole lot of magic left, but you still get glimpses of it in, you know, different creatures that roam. There's one in particular I'm talking about. You know, there's a particular mount you can get. Uh... (laughs) You know, you still get it in some mechanical things like a motorcycle. I don't want to talk about it. 
<laughs> but <A> grin. <laughs> the the magic does exist, but it is not as prominent, in my opinion. It's not. It's not as easily. I, I wouldn't say prominent. I keep saying prominent. It's not as easily accessible as it once was before. Right. So, and we say that a lot of things, you know, as you cut grass, items aren't dropping out like they used to. And I mentioned that, you know, the Picari are the ones that drop things in the grass. Well, that means the Picari aren't around like they used to be either. You know, species, species as a general are very limited in Breath of the Wild. So it's something to think about the next time you crack open Breath of the Wild and sit down for a nice little enjoyment session. But all that being said, I think we're out of time for our Legend of Zelda episode, my guy. One more quick instance of magic that just crossed my mind. Mm. And I feel, I'd feel weird if I didn't talk about specifically Wolf Link. Oh. When he's no longer no longer in human form, Minna teaches him to tap into his magical senses so mm-hmm. he can actually see into the Twilight Realm and the souls trapped in there. Oh, yeah. Uh, I yeah I you, I breezed over him. I can't believe I forgot Wolf Link. Yeah, it's yeah. that was probably one of the coolest games for lots of reasons. But the magic in that game as a whole, like that whole game, is literally just magic. Everything is magic. Everything. Oh, dude! Like you know what never mind i'll get to that story when we eventually get to twilight princess <laughs> it's but coming that, that yeah that game man oh my gosh but yeah i was gonna say if wolf did it magic wolf mention wolf link on the magic episode <laughs> so with all that being said i think it's time for us to bid our lovely listeners adieu so until next time thank you for listening tune in next week Thank you all for listening to the Legend of Zelda Lorecast tonight. We hope you enjoyed yourselves. If you did, tell a friend, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can chat with us all things Legend of Zelda on the Robots Radio Discord. Or you can get hold of us on our Twitter at LOZ Lorecast. Intro and outro are done by Bentonal Landscape. Links are in the show notes below. Till next time, dear listener, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this.